Welcome to Tartan Talk with USA Kilts, our interview series where we chat with interesting people in the Celtic heritage scene, industry insiders, artists, influencers, you name it. Come with us as we highlight unique perspectives and inside stories. So sit back, grab your beverage of choice, and enjoy the conversation. Today, we're sitting down with Brian Wilton, MBE. He was the director of the Scottish Tartans Authority for almost a decade. He's the author of the acclaimed book titled Tartans, and he's traveled extensively to lecture about and promote tartans from the Arctic Circle to Japan, from the US to Russia, and many countries in between. He's widely recognized as a talented tartan designer and a leading expert on tartan and its history. Brian, thank you for joining us. Very nice to be invited, Rocky. Thank you. Absolutely. So for, for those in the audience who don't know, what is what are those those three letters at the end of your name mean or at the end of your, your title, your MBE? And how did you get those? Uh, that's, there are the Queen's Honours um, once a year and people who have allegedly done very well in, in particular spheres are, are given these awards. Member of the British Empire, um, sounds archaic, particularly in days when uh, the, the empire is no more. Uh, and one of these days, the word empire, I'm sure, will be uh, removed from it. Uh, but it's a, it's a very prestigious award, and it was given for um, services that uh, I have given to uh, the tartan industry in Scotland. Nice. So how did you come to the tartan industry? How, what was your angle that you came to it with? Hmm. I came back to Scotland, Rocky, and in, in I think it was 1986 uh, to launch a magazine. And I happened to settle in the small village of Comrie in Perthshire. Uh, and there in the village was uh, an organization called the Scottish Tartan Society. Uh, I thought that was particularly interesting. I got an article written uh, and uh, published in the magazine. Um, and I became interested in what they were doing and realized that tartan was uh, was grossly underpromoted um, in, in Scotland. So I got involved in, in helping with the Tartan Society. Wonderful. And that's back in 1986. I agree. It was it was definitely underpromoted as a symbol of Scotland back at that mm. time. Now, there were multiple efforts in the latter half of the 20th century to start, you know, start to catalog and organize uh, tartans, like you were just talking about the Scottish Tartan Society. Take me through some of the acronyms, some of the other acronyms like TICA, the STS, the STWR, the STA. How did those evolve? Um, and yeah, who were some of the key players in those? Right, I, th I think the one I, I should speak about first is is TECA, which was uh, American. It was a tartan educational and cultural association, I think it was. Um, and as with so as so many things, tartan was, uh, was and is still much more appreciated outside Scotland than it, than it is within Scotland. And there were some very clever individuals uh, in the States, uh, people like Phil Smith and Bob Martin, uh, and others whose whose names uh, his names escape me for the moment. Uh, they got very interested in the history of tartan itself, and this was something that uh, I don't think any of the weavers in Scotland were interested in. Uh, 
they were they were poles apart from the academics. So Tekka were the first. Then I believe the, the Tartan Society uh, followed, and the Tartan Society was was very very much involved in in research. But as with so many organisations in the, in the world of Tartan. Uh, megalomania sometimes rears its ugly head um, and the tartan society fell out with very many of the the academics those academics feeling that there still ought to be a body representing tartan and promoting it worldwide they formed the the scottish tartans authority and uh the scottish tartan society sts um at that point sort of splintered into well, really, just one guy. I believe it was just one guy. What Keith Lumsden, you know, went off and formed the Scottish Tartan World Register, and then the other half or the other bit was the Scottish Tartans Authority. Is that correct? That's correct. Keith Keith uh, Keith left uh, and started the STWR on his own uh, and kept that going for for very many years. Um, the Scottish Tartans Authority that really was the was the brainchild of uh, Blair McNaughton, the late Blair McNaughton um, of uh, the House of Edgar and McNaughton's Holding, who are based in Perth. Um, they got together uh, almost all the principal weavers, and I heard of them. Um, I had transferred my allegiance, as it were, from the Tartan Society because of the great problems it was having. And um, eventually was asked if I would take over as director of the Scottish Tartans Authority. Uh, and I was particularly fortunate in that I was the pig in the middle, as it were. Uh, whilst I was very interested in the history and researching, uh, I wasn't a pure researcher. Neither was I a merchant. I wasn't in the business. So I was able to, I was going to say, have a, have a foot in both camps, uh, which was a great asset in the, the formation and the building up of the Scottish Tartans Authority. Interesting. And was this Blair McNaughton Senior or the junior, the one who just sold that was, House of Edgar? Senior, the, the, the late Blair McNaughton okay. Senior, yes. Got it. I, I thought you were breaking news to me that that the other Blair had passed and I didn't know. No, no, no. The the, the younger the younger lives in uh, lives in Ontario now and, and certainly hasn't passed. Through your tenure at the at the Scottish Tartan Authority, um, one of the things that you had really pushed for was the promotion of a, a an official government body, which w uh, ended up becoming the Scottish, the, the, the Tartan, what's the official name of it? The Tartan Register? Scottish, Scottish, Scottish Tartan Register. Register. Uh, Scottish Register of Tartans. Yes, exactly. SRT. I, I always want to, you know, move those words around. I, I find myself uh, doing it and I've known them so from, from their inception. <laughs> yes, uh, my experience of uh, the Scottish Tartan Society, uh, who had its own database of tartans, and then Tekka had its database of tartans. Keith Lumsden with the Scottish Tartan World Register had his register of tartans. I was very much aware that these bodies were, were all transient. 
and they could all disappear. And with them, uh, the, the, the huge um, well of knowledge that they had, uh, they had acquired as far as the history of tartans and the registration of tartans were concerned. So in principle, I thought it highly desirable that the formation and maintenance of a register of tartans, uh, not just Scottish ones, I, I should uh, add, uh, shouldn't be left to uh, a commercial firm, shouldn't be left to a group of, of private individuals, uh, and, and should be in government hands. I, I agree. As much as I, I'm not a huge fan of government, the, the, I agree that you need something outside to sort of keep it all together and make sure it doesn't get you know, lost into the ether kind of thing, as, as many of the, you know, the original origins of tartans and the kilt kind of are. So a, a way to catalog it is brilliant. Um, I want to pick at the, uh, the one thing you said. I, it slipped my mind that Tekka was actually an American organization. I find that fascinating. And you said they were the first ones, I believe? I believe they were the first because I, when I came along and be, became involved in tartans, uh, the Scottish Tartan Society was formed. Uh, Tekka had been formed. Uh, I'm not sure of the timing of uh, those formations. So I don't know who was first. I suspect uh, that it may well have been uh, your fellow Americans who were first because they, they display much more interest in, in tartans. Uh, or did do than uh, many people in Scotland. That's that's kind of where I was going with it through your uh, through your tenure at the the Scottish Tartans Authority. How uh, how did you see you saw obviously interest in tartans from all over the world, um, whether that's Canada, Australia, Germany, you know, America, everywhere. Um, you saw the potential for tartan outside of Scotland. How did uh, what what do you think the the balance of let's say Tartan Authority members or you know people emailing people asking questions or website visitors what came from inside Scotland versus out with? From memory, uh, Rocky, I, I I would say that the bulk of uh, the bulk of the membership was was from overseas uh, because people overseas have a a hugely romanticized vision of Scotland, as you as you well know, uh, and therefore their enthusiasm for joining something like the Scottish Tarts Authority was very much stronger uh, than those of the, the homegrown Scots. Yeah, it one of the one of the things I like to kind of point out, and the original concept or idea wasn't mine, but that uh, uh, Americans and Canadians, those in the diaspora, those with Scottish heritage not who aren't actually Scottish, but those who have heritage. We are coming to tartans and coming to kilts, generally speaking, from a different angle, from a different place than those in Scotland are coming to it. They're, they're Scottish, they know they're Scots, versus Americans, Canadians, and everyone else who are just trying to celebrate a family connection, not a national connection. Yes, exactly right. Now, when the when the Tartan Register was officially formed and given the old blessing from from <laughs> from the Scottish government, um, what were what were what was your role in that in that process? 
Well, I certainly was one of the was one of the prime movers in persuading Scottish government that tartans uh, that they ought to overcome their uh, I won't say repugnance uh, their their antipathy towards tartans because I think their views were probably coloured by the tartan kitsch that one sees in still sees to this day in Edinburgh and Glasgow and really throughout the central belt. And they couldn't disassociate themselves from that. So they needed they needed a lot of persuading. Uh, and somebody else who, who did a lot of the persuading uh, was, was Deirdre Kinloch Anderson from Kinloch Anderson in, uh, in, in Edinburgh. She and I frequently um, had little spats and didn't see eye to eye. But on one thing, uh, we were uh, we were we were in tune. And that was getting a, a, an official register. Um, there are times um, after the register was formed when I wish I'd never thought of the idea, uh, but, but that's another story. That's the monster you create, and then the monster has its own life, and you can't control the monster anymore. I completely get it. Well, that's it. Uh, our hope, that was the Scottish Tartans Authority, our hope was that we were very obviously the the leading specialists in registering tartans, uh, in, in researching tartans at that particular time. Uh, and we had hoped uh, and had pleaded with Scottish government that they contract the job of maintaining a register to the Scottish Tartans Authority, which to us was a, was a very logical way of doing it uh, and cost saving as well. Uh, but unfortunately, that, uh, that that didn't work. So, as to my further role in uh, in that process, uh, I had many meetings with the uh, with the computer uh, programmers at uh, Scotland's National Records uh, and meetings, uh, and they put together their the software uh, the program for the existing register. Uh, and I advised them based on the fact that I had been registering tartans on behalf of the authority for quite a few years. Let's talk a bit about the 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 process of registering a tartan. What are some of the key factors, um, either through the STA or the, the uh, STR? What are some of the things that uh, are considered when someone comes forward with a design and saying, "Hey, I'd like to register this and call it this." In the Tartan Authority days, uh, the, the the requirements were fairly were fairly simple. The tartan had to be unique. Uh, it couldn't be or shouldn't be interpreted as uh, not interpreted. That's not quite the word. Uh, shouldn't be mistaken for another tartan. And and Peter McDonald, who was a, who has been a, a staunch tartan specialist for very many decades, um, he and I decided that the test for this was that if from a distance of six feet, uh, the man in the street might mistake one tartan or a new tartan for an existing an existing one, uh, then the design was wrong, uh, and that was fairly fairly arbitrary. Uh, so that's the first one. It, the design must be unique. The name must be unique. The name must not be 
in any way uh, insulting. Um, and, and really, that was uh, that was that was it. And if they paid us their money, um, then I would I would register the tartan for them. Fair. Or uh, I'll also add that name can't be misleading. I believe. Uh, is, uh, yes, one of the mis, mis, I, I should have uh, I should have attached a few more uh, a few more adjectives, adjectives to that. Uh, shouldn't shouldn't be misleading. Shouldn't be making claims that it shouldn't. Uh, should not be subversive. Um, and, and generally speaking, uh, really had to be acceptable. But that these days, in many cases, uh, some of our restrictions um, seem to have uh, have gone with the winds as far as the, the tartan register is concerned. Yep, it's a bit uh, it, it's a bit of a subjective practice shall we say, in, in registering and designing tartans? Yes. I think one of, one of the, the, interesting, uh, the interesting things about the Scottish Tartan Society was that they were quite dictatorial. Uh, if they didn't like the name of a tartan or didn't think that there ought to be a tartan uh, for your little dog who passed last week, then they would turn around and say, no, we're not registering it, full stop. The problem now is that because the register is run by a government body, uh, they they can't behave like that. So we end up with uh, with with all sorts of extremely strange tartans, which and I've maintained this for very many years, uh, tends to bring the, the the world of Scottish tartan into disrepute. But uh, the genie is uh, the genie is out of the bottle. So. There's nothing I or anybody else can do about it now. I've discussed this before, where it's it's a very the the any any organization like that, whether it's the 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 STR or the STA or whoever, um, or SDS, they're they're in a bit of a precarious position because there it should be their their main focus, their main thrust should be in my in my estimation as an American, you know, who's not who's invested but not invested in in Scottish government. Um, their main thrust should be to catalog existing tartans, to make sure that there's a, a register of them for the world to say, okay, this is a thing, that's a thing, that's a thing. Um, and when they when they slip into the role of, no, nah, we don't like it. If if a tartan exists, let, let's say they, they say to me or to you, um, nope, we don't like that tartan. It looks too close to that one. Or it's, it's it, I don't like the name that you're giving it. As a commercial entity or as an individual, if you still have it woven and still go forward with it and it's out there, and especially as a commercial entity, if I create you know, hundreds and thousands of kilts in a specific design and the register refuses to register it, it's, to me, it's, it's going against what they were meant to do, which is to, to catalog these things, to control it to some degree, but to catalog it as well. and their their the database will be wrong the the tighter that they make these restrictions you're you're absolutely you're absolutely right rocky and one of the one of the ways around that problem that i employed was if i came across a tartan that uh you know w w was was possibly promoting the idea of rioting in london um if that tartan existed uh, then I would put it into the register 
but I would not publicize it. I would not make it available for uh, for public searching. Okay. So you would just, you would include it, but it would be like a footnote that it was only on the back end. It wasn't on the front end. That's right. And, and uh, it, you put your, put your finger on, on the, the task of a tartan register, regardless of whose it is. It should be to record every tartan that it is aware of or, or it's made aware of, uh, but not necessarily to promote it uh, by giving it any airtime. That's fair. I think that is a, a, a fair and, and, and just way to kind of go about your role or previous role as director of the STA. Um, yeah, that makes sense to me. Mm. With several hundred tartans being designed and registered and recorded every single year, um, or I should say with thousands of designs being <laughs> designed, but you know, at least a few hundred being registered and recorded. Why do you think there's been such a boom in the last 20 years or so with registering tartans? Oh, this, this, this sounds fanciful, um, but the last 10, 20 years uh, ar around the world have, uh, have not been particularly peaceful. Um, very many people have, have felt I think a lot less secure, not necessarily on an international basis, uh, but the stresses of modern life, I think have impacted on people and they have tended to, to look back. The modern media, and you look at computerization, you look at broadband, you look at all the social media. Uh, there are very many people who do feel insecure and want to belong and want to retain their individuality, which over the years, um, socially and, and, and legally, I think has, has just been gently eroded. One way of reestablishing your individuality uh, is to have a tartan, to have a tartan designed, to have it registered. It's your little touch of immortality, perhaps, in yes. your mind. Uh, and it's it's also a feeling of a feeling of belonging. Belonging to, let's say, be fanciful and say that that great Scottish family, that uh, the, the clan, uh, the Scots clan in, in general. Uh, and perhaps feeling that you enjoy some of the great attributes that that were uh, that the Scots were well known for, for over over the decades uh, there was hardly a corner of the world uh, of the of the empire to use that terrible word again uh, where you wouldn't find Scots uh, and they were great achievers so I, I think there's a whole uh, there's a whole medley of reasons why why people have uh, why people have taken to tartans, uh, and I'm assuming that those are those are individuals that I'm really talking about. Uh, commercial companies, commercial companies, if they had any Scottish connections, they can see the benefit uh, of pointing those out to their to their shareholders to their customers. Uh, and they also realized 
what a tremendous branding tool tartan can be. Uh, and I think the one obvious example I would use is uh, is, is uh, Brooks Brothers uh, of Madison Avenue. Um, and I did their signature tartan for them. And I think they ended up producing something like 120 different products in their tartan. Uh, they uh, they cottoned on very quickly uh, to the to the benefits of a having a Scottish connection and b having such a um, an iconic brand that they could uh, they could use in promotion. Yeah, I I didn't know that uh, you were the one who designed the Brooks Brothers tartan. I've I've used that as an example, and I've said for for years that. A lot of companies, a lot of salespeople, like people in business are missing a trick in uh, identifying a, a, or designing a Scottish tartan, designing a tartan, and then incorporating that into the story of their brand. Um, yeah, the Brooks Brothers did a spectacular job with their marketing of it. The designs themselves were, were beautiful as well. That was very well done. And of course, another company, another company that, um, should have followed, I say should have followed the Brooks Brothers. Uh, they had their tartan before Brooks Brothers. Uh, I was commissioned to design one for Saks Fifth Avenue. They did okay. not nice. next to nothing with it. And, and I was hugely disappointed, not because I wanted to see my tartan out there. People very quickly forget who the designer was. Uh, and, and the designer is 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 uh, often looked upon as a flash in the pan. A lot of people don't see the potential for it the same way that you would see it or that I see it. I I get it. Uh, and so many companies for whom I've designed tartan, uh, perhaps the the instigator um, could could see the benefit of having the tartan, but perhaps they moved on, and the tartan the the company did nothing with it. I could I could name a dozen, a couple of dozen companies uh, for whom I've done tartans, and they've never they've never used them. Uh, uh, and it, it's it's not because they were uh, crummy designs, I don't think. But of course, I'm biased. Uh, they just didn't know how to handle them. Yeah, same. I've I've designed tartans for like three or four different colleges and things like that, and the exact same thing. They they have a particular little reason that they want it but they don't do much else with it once they have the design so with all these new tartans coming out 300 tartans a year is this a good thing or a bad thing you gave us a little bit of a preview with the uh the tartan design for my dead dog thing i think you're referring to the i think it's called the <laughs> bj tartan yes what are your thoughts on that i i'm against him I, I'm, I'm against the dilution of of of, of the the stock of tartans. Uh, one way around it, which I, nobody nobody will use. Peter McDonald and I spoke about this at length, uh, and that was to hive off the historical tartans into one database uh, and put all the others into. Uh, I don't know what we'd call it, a consumer a database, database, whatever, um, so that it would it would separate them out and it would leave the genuine historical tartans uh, on their own. 
but then uh, we would miss out tartans like uh, Brooks Brothers uh, and, and you know many of the some 250 that I've done uh, were, were, were done uh, for, for very good historical reasons. So I'm sure there could have been a system uh, that evolved had anybody looked at it seriously. Uh, the government didn't uh, think they had enough problems with the teething troubles that they had with the, the Scottish Register of Tartan. So uh, that register is just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and we have something like, you know, 13, 13 a week, 13 new ones every week. And this has been going on for years and years and shows and shows no signs, no signs of abating. Uh, something interesting um, allied to the question you've asked. I don't know how many of the tartans that are registered ever actually get woven. Uh, That's this point. is not this is not a statistic which is um, which is available or indeed has has ever been asked. If they had all been woven, or if a large slice of them had been woven. Uh, I would then say that that was a very good thing because it was promoting tartan. Uh, and in the majority of cases, uh, people seeing tartan associate it with Scotland. Therefore, it has to be good uh, for the Scottish economy uh, in terms of tourism um, and, and in other commercial ways. Uh, but I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Right. It's, I think it, it is a... A slippery slope when you know as we discussed earlier when you start trying to regulate which are good enough or not good enough it's a it's a difficult question and I'm not saying you're wrong to have your opinion what I'm saying is it's a difficult question of let's say uh, for instance the the Buchanan that was just installed as the you know the the, the clan chief of clan Buchanan now after you know X hundred years or whatever it was the amount of time that they were you know had no clan chief they had a tartan or he had a tartan commission the tartan to be designed just for the event would that fall within the the historical register because it has historical implications or would it just go into the new the new register so it's 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 it would be a sticky one i think i i i, I well I was about to say I, I don't think I would find it sticky. That that has it has um, historical value, uh, but some of the you just have to look at some of the names of of, of tartans and 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 uh, you know the spirit of the sea and and all sorts of names like that. That's not historical. Uh, that's I won't say it's nonsense. Um, it's fashion. It's not even fashion. What's the uh, what, what's the term when vanity publishing? Fair. Right. Yeah. There there are hundreds of vanity tartans that people have got hold of uh, a, an online tartan design program. Uh, they've produced one or two tartans. Uh, they've paid to have them registered, and they're delighted. Uh, and I suspect it's exactly the same as in the old days, um, paying to have your pub your book published. 
nowadays uh, you, you you do it on you do it on Amazon, and there are hundreds, probably thousands of them. Uh, vanity vanity books. So vanity books, vanity tartans, all the same. Fair point. Some of them good, most of them mediocre. Had they had they had to put them out to public vote, uh, the vast majority of them would have been kicked out. Spoken like a true tartan designer. <laughs> Being an accomplished tartan designer yourself, let's talk a bit about the process. Now, people can find your website at tartanambassador.co.uk. But what I'd like to hear from you, take me through the process. So if someone contacts you and says, hey, I want to design a tartan, or I want you to design a tartan for me. What is your process from first phone call through, you know, the through the finished design? It's it's fairly simple, Rocky. Um, I respond to them with uh, with a, a, a rather fat portfolio of designs, uh, just by way of my credentials, so that they know, uh, you know. I, I, I'm not uh, I'm not misleading them in any way, uh, but the most important uh, attachment that I give them in the, uh, in response to their initial email uh, is a double page of notes on the design process. And that design process is once they've given me a 50% deposit, uh, I will then chat to them uh, via email, or if they like, we can we can talk by phone to see what they want their tartan to do. And then I ask them questions for looking for design elements that I can include in the tartan that will make it exclusively theirs. And some of it sounds very corny and, and uh, I said, but it, it is corny, but it, it makes those tartans unique. I could say, how many children do you have? What gender are they? Oh, two boys and a girl. Okay, if it fits into the tartan, I can put two thin lines in, two thin blues for boys, and one pink or a red for the girl. And, and, and people love the thought of that. They love the thought of encapsulating their family uh, into that design, because that's going to be there in 100 years' time, in 200 years' time, if the design survives. There, there are very many ways. In fact, strangely enough, I was looking at a tartan this morning that I, I designed for um, an aircraft manufacturing company based on the Isle of Wight. Hmm. And I included in their tartan the Morse letters for, I think it was an IW. Uh, so dit, dit to narrow lines, and I think W was perhaps da da da. I can't remember. So that would be a, another narrow line, and then two slightly broader ones. Uh, and they were over the moon with this uh, because their identity was uh, was in there. So there are there are so many so many ideas that can be incorporated into into tartan designs. So. Once I've gone through that process, uh, and it doesn't take as long as I've taken to explain it, uh, I would then get down and do uh, probably within a week to 10 days, a minimum of three draft designs, send those off as PDFs uh, and either register the one that they like 
or get some feedback and they would like something changed um, and we can quickly get to the final tartan. I then submit it for registration. Uh, the Scottish Register of Tartans will send them a certificate uh, and that's it. And then they may come back and say, you know, can you advise us on weaving? Or what should we do with the tartan? So all of that is happening in the current day. Now let's talk a little bit about how tartan has evolved over time. And you, you brought up some stuff there about, you know, the, the symbolism and the meaning that can be ascribed into tartan. But, you know, like many people may or may not know, it started out as just, you know, hey, here's a pretty design of warp and weft, you know, you know, checkered cloth that we made, um, you know, as a weaver, you know, a few hundred years ago. So how did tartan evolve from just pretty cloth through to, you know, symbolism being incorporated in, whether it's the numbers, the colors and that kind of thing? I think the symbolism is uh, has happened within your lifetime and my lifetime. And I would say the last, I would make a guess and say the last 20, 30 years. Uh, I don't think there was uh, any symbolism in, uh, in, in any of the tartans that we look upon as, as, um, as, as historical designs. Um, I think they, 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 they came about by happenstance, I'm quite sure. The, the oldest symbolism, I, I keep going to this factoid because it's the one, it's the date that sticks out most in my mind. The, the oldest one that I can recall or have seen that has symbolism ascribed to the colors is the Nova Scotia tartan, which was designed in 1953, although that may have been a little bit of gilding the lily marketing type effort after the fact as far as the design. Um, but we had talked briefly about, you know, the, the number, mean, the numerical, you know, thread count meaning kind of being in the last 30, 40 years kind of thing where the colors may have been the last 60, 70 years. But it's, in my mind, it's, it's just the natural evolution of a symbol. Um, and of, of tartan, where it's, it starts off with, you know, just aesthetically, it looks good. And then over time, people want to find meaning within it. They want to ascribe meaning to it. They want some kind of story to be there and not just, well, that's my clan tartan. Why is it my clan tartan? Because it's pretty. You know, they, they want there to be something more. Um, and I think that's, that speaks to the evolution of it. Do you agree or disagree? Yeah, I would agree with you entirely. I was forgetting about the the, the Nova Scotia one, uh, and and like you, I suspect that the uh, the attribution of colours um, to to that particular tartan may have may have happened after the after the event. Uh, but but you're quite right that the colours were the um, the colours were were the first items of symbolism that that people used and. Almost, almost all of them came from the states, uh, and it would be, you know, yellow for the prairies and green for the grass and blue for the wide skies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, so that certainly, you're absolutely right. That that was the beginning of wanting their tartans to be more than a, a, an aesthetically pleasing design, uh, and it has evolved from there, where where 
inventive minds like uh, like like yours and mine um, have come up with ways of, uh, of of celebrating events uh, and of giving people tartans that really do resonate with them. Yeah, it's a it's a powerful story. There there can be a powerful story within tartan, and tartan is such an iconic thing already that it's it just in my mind and i'm assuming yours it kind of it just makes sense to marry the symbolism with such a powerful symbol you know of of scottishness yeah. so to speak i mean one of the most one of the most powerful tartans that uh, i have ever been involved with i've ever designed is in fact the one that's that's sitting behind me uh and 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 that is the uh, the, the the arctic convoy tartans uh and i shall Put my my glasses on and, and and look at some of the notes here. Uh, now they're not very popular at the moment, uh, but I have to say that the 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 Russians for for decades, certainly since uh, since the end of the last war, uh, have never ever forgotten the Arctic convoys. Uh, and the sacrifices that were made uh, in getting food through to uh, through to Archangel and, and, and Murmangst. Now the majority of those the majority of those convoys uh, left from Loch U in Scotland, uh, and the basis of the the tartan that's sitting behind me are really there are elements from the MacLeod and, and the Mackenzie tartans, uh, which were the clan lands surrounding Loch U. Now. When I was commissioned by the, the Russian Consul General, I got names and telephone numbers of many of the veterans from those convoys. Uh, and as you can imagine, they're dwindling fast every year. And yeah. I made a point of, of phoning a number of them uh, and because I wanted this to be really inclusive. Uh, phoned them and said, when I say Arctic Convoy to you, what color immediately comes to mind and why? And I'll just go through some of the colors because this is what makes, shows how powerful tartan can be. So white, pretty obvious. I thought ice flows, uh, ice encrusted superstructures um, and, and the white berries of the survivors because all the veterans uh, of the Arctic convoys wear white berries. But the answer I got from one of the veterans was white the wind-whipped wave tops, something I would never have thought of. The next color was, was gray, and I thought, I had thought sea, sky, allied battleships. His answer was enemy submarines. Hmm. Black, I thought, okay, you know, three quarters of their sailing was done in the dark, I'm quite sure. So black is an obvious color, but no, black to that man was line upon line of enemy bombers. And then the most chilling of all was silver. And that was the sight of bubbles in the wake of an enemy torpedo coming towards you. Now, how much more powerful? Yeah. Now, you can't see it on the tartan behind me. There is a silver line in it, 
and the silver line only goes one way. It's only in the in the warp. It doesn't go across. So anybody looking at the tartan in in the correct way is seeing the torpedo coming towards them. So to me, that 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 um, really exemplified what can be done with tartan design. And most of the ones that uh, that, that I've done are, are nothing nothing by comparison to that. So there's a good one for you. Absolutely. Now, over the last 300 years or so, there's been a lot of very key figures in Tartan's evolution. So let's chat about a few of those people and how you think they were important and or why. So let's start with uh, Sir Walter Scott. Sir Walter Scott did uh, probably has been one of the greatest promoters of Scotland and its its history. Um, with his with his novels, of course, to start with, uh, but but also of his his input to uh, the visit of of, of George the Fourth um, when he came to Edinburgh, uh, because he was one of the um, he he was one of the he was a co-organizer of that, uh, and he was determined that uh, the chiefs uh, all the chiefs should attend uh, if at all possible. Um, so he 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 was instrumental in the tartan world that we that we see today, uh, without without any doubt. It also should be said that he certainly didn't have his head in the clouds, because he was one of the the few individuals who saw through somebody else that you may mention in a few moments, and that was the Sobieski Stuarts. Who designed uh, many, many fake, shall we say, fake tartans, uh, and 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 Walter Scott, Walter Scott did not believe them at all, um, but but they won the day. So so Walter Scott, a uh, huge input, of huge value to to Scottish history, um, and to the romantic Scotland that uh, that so many people enjoy today. He is the one that you know, kind of set it up and codified, you know. Yes, uh, I, and I, I think Scott is. Uh, if if we were to if we were to look as to who is who is to blame for for this this great patriotism and uh, and and the romanticism around Tartan and the Scottish Highlanders, uh, Scott certainly with his books um, is is one of the prime movers. Uh, it was the the coincidence of Walter Scott, the Sobieski Stuarts, George the Fourth's visit to Edinburgh, and then Victoria and Albert, and 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 those four uh, are together entirely responsible for um, what we enjoy today of of, of the Scottish Highlander. Uh, Tartan uh, and and everything associated with it, uh, the good and the bad, the kitsch, uh, the ghastly tartans that we see paraded in in, in tartan, uh, but but also the the real tart the tartan you'll see at Highland Games uh, and all the traditions. So we, we we have those four those four entities as it were to thank, and and Walter Scott is is the first in line. Yeah, I I find it. Um, 
amazing that they all kind of, they were in the right place at the right time and, and such all seminal figures. And you're right. I do want to talk about the Sobieskis and how uh, I, I sort of view it as a, a yin yang with, with Sir Walter Scott and with the Sobieskis where Sir Walter Scott had very good intentions of what he wanted to do, but there was also a little bit of the, you know, you know, specifically architecting what it should be and codifying it and saying, you know, pushing it forward, you know, pre-packaging it and moving it forward. Um, where the Sobieskis then said, right, hmm, there's something to this. And they kind of took that pre-packaged thing and took it a step or six too far, potentially on who you ask. The so what are your thoughts on the Sobieskis? Well, they were <laughs> we have an expression over here which is probably not used these days that, that somebody is a wide boy or somebody is a bit of a spiv. Uh, you know, he, he may uh, be selling stuff that fell off the back of a lorry. It, it, it's that kind of character. Uh, and, and the two Sobieskis, I think, were really uh, very, very upmarket, very upmarket spivs. Uh, they they seemed to sincerely believe that their origins were with uh, were with Bonnie Prince Charlie. Uh, they they didn't seem to make any money out of the tartans that they designed. They seemed to have immersed themselves in 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 Scottish tradition. Um, and I think one of the one of the greatest problems with the Sobieskis is that we don't know which tartans they invented because yeah. they were moving around Scotland uh, and apparently were coming across tales from from uh, different families, little scraps of tartan, stories about the tartan that the clan used to have. Uh, we don't know which of those pieces they absorbed and then regurgitated in a tartan for a clan uh, that hadn't had one before, and then of course, um, I mean, what got up, to, what upset uh, Sir Walter Scott was that uh, they then embarked on on designing tartans for families south of the Highlands, uh, and and the families south of the Highlands, I don't know whether they fell for it, uh, or whether they thought, why not? Why should the Highlanders uh, have all the tartans? Yes, let's. Let's have one. It, it it will bind our family together. It makes us much more important than we really are. So I, the Sobieskis, I think, were uh, were were a great force for good. If I'm taking human nature, um, you know, and trying to apply today's logic and human nature to you know the 1840s, 1850s, um, I think that the uh, the people in the lowlands who, when the Sobieski said, okay, here, here are some tartans for lowland names. I think that those people just kind of, they didn't ask questions because they wanted to believe it and they wanted to be involved and they wanted their own thing. And they wanted to feel special too within the tartan craze that was happening from the 1820s forward. I think they're like, yes, we finally have one too. Great. Woohoo. And I don't think that they were thinking critically about it or asking questions it was the you know don't ask don't tell just you just go straight into it and embrace it and therefore you could be part of the larger you know community 
that was being built around it at the time. And of course, they were they were all ably helped by the weavers who were not about to say, oh, that's that's historical nonsense. Those people never had a tartan. They were uh, opening the mill doors uh, and welcoming them in, which is understandable. They were uh, they were commercial uh, concerns. That's actually one of the really neat uh, ideas that uh, came up in my discussion with Dr. Rosie Wayne. She wrote the, the book uh, Highland Style. Um, she works for the National Museum of Scotland. Was We kind of explored briefly, and I think there's a whole, a whole lot to actually explore there, the, the confluence, the, the, the partnership between commerce and tartans, between you know, individuals and clan chiefs and tartan manufacturers, and how that all kind of works together. So uh, talk to me a little bit. Uh, let's explore that bit a little bit. Um, so with like Wilson's Bannockburn, how did they you know, discuss you know, what they were doing with consumers and you know, with people who wanted tartans at that time? Oh, that's a difficult one. Um, it, it shouldn't be because uh, there are hundreds and hundreds of Wilson letters, but it's not something that I, uh, that I ever specialized in. But, but, but I, I do know that very many of their district tartans, for example, um, might have started, I think it might have been the Aberdeen one, that one of their customers in Aberdeen uh, liked a particular tartan and had good sales of it. And down at Wilson's of Bannockburn, it got referred to as the Aberdeen tartan, meaning that's the tartan that sells well to our customer up in Aberdeen. Uh, and I suspect quite a few of the, the district tartans evolved because of that. They sold, they sold particularly well. Uh, and you look at tartan, uh, another good example is the, is the Meg Merrilies one, going back to Sir Walter Scott. Meg Merrilies was, was one, of the, one of the characters that, uh, that he invented and wrote about, uh, that they designed a tartan called Meg Merrilies. And now um, that's the Merrilies family tartan. Uh, so very many of the, the, the ones that we see around that are not, I wouldn't include the clan tartans in that, uh, but certainly the non-clan tartans, the district tartans, very many of those, uh, I'm quite sure came around, um, came about through happenstance. Now, uh, and that, that tradition, if you, if I'm going to call it a tradition, whether it is or not, I'm going to call it that the tradition of the, you know, the, the partnership of commerce and consumer in Tartan's evolution. It goes all the way back to Wilson's and it, it continues today. When I spoke with um, House of Edgar and Loch Heron, um, I was asking them about, you know, how, you know, who drives Tartan culture? Who drives it? Is it the consumer? Is it the mill? Is it the Tartan register? Is it the designers? How does it keep moving forward? How has it never become static? Uh, and one of the things that uh, that Bill uh, Whelan pointed out was it is driven in his estimation by the mills first because they're the ones coming up with new and different ideas like marled yarns or doing tartans and tweeds or coming up with different universal tartans um, or for like Flower of Scotland, which is a huge seller for them and things like that. What do you think as far as 
in that vein. Is this a good thing that it's driven by the mills or is it a bad thing and why? I, <laughs> not something I've ever really thought about, but now you're making me think about it. Uh, I would have thought it was a good thing. Um, the mills very rarely come up with something flippant, something passing. There's usually a lot of thought has gone into the tartans, that, that, that uh, fashion tartans that they've designed. Um, and there is, there is much more chance of them being aesthetically pleasing. Uh, and the other important thing to remember is that, uh, you know, I can design some, I could design possibly some delightful fashion tartans, but they would never see the light of day because I'm not a weaver. Uh, and no weaver uh, is going to weave tartans on spec, i.e. hoping, keeping their fingers crossed that they'll be a success. Uh, I wouldn't finance the weaving of any of my designs because it uh, it's an extremely costly uh, costly pursuit. Uh, so the weaver's tartans, you can generally guarantee that, that, that they will work. They, they will be commercially successful. Uh, and the idea of the, you mentioned the marled yarns, uh, and, and I frequently have been trying to introduce marled yarns into tartans that I design for people, uh, because I think they give, uh, they, they give tartans a, an extra dimension um, and, and make, yes. them extremely, make them extremely interesting. Yes, I 100% agree. Do you remember in the 1990s, there was, and I think they still probably exist, those 3D images where it looked like, like weird patterns. And if you kind of unfocus your eyes and it, like a design pops out at it, that's kind of the thing that the, the marled yarns remind me of is it gives it almost a three dimensionality to a flat piece of cloth. I, I love exploring the idea of the relationship between the mills. Um, if, if I'll be, if I'm cynical about it, you could say that it's a necessary evil at very, very least, because without the mills, you know, trying to push things forward and come up with different things to do, it won't evolve and they won't be able to be, you know, be around as a mill. Um, and then tartans in general would suffer and there wouldn't be as many sources for the things. And it's as a, as a living piece of fashion, a living piece of history, it could cease to be if you don't have commercial entities like La Caron, House of Edgar, Martin Mills, all of those kind of dragging it forward, um, potentially against its will. You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, yet again, Rocky, the, um, the, the, the mills are running, are running two streams. One stream are they, or one stream is the, the long established clan tartans for which there were always be a demand. Uh, the other side are the new ones that they bring in. Uh, and and they, they obviously increase the commercial viability of the mills and, and allow them to, to continue. Um, it, it, it's as simple as that. And, and then of course, there are designs from outside the mills that, that, that appear. And I'm thinking of, of 
uh, one of mine that I, I did for uh, um, I did for a client that I think recently uh, the mill enjoyed an order for something like fifty thousand um, pounds for that particular tartan. So some of the ones that are done for commercial organisations uh, are really taken up and they work well. Um, I, I did one a while back for the, the, the police union, uh, the Scottish Federation of, uh, of, of, of Policemen. Uh, no, that wasn't quite its name, but uh, that's, that's basically what it was. Uh, that did extremely well. Again, it was, it was instigated by a conference uh, and 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 by a particular uh, a particular event, you know, I've done them for twenty fifth anniversaries, fiftieth, hundredth anniversaries. Uh, that's a very good trigger for people in Scotland uh, having tartans. Uh, frequently, there is a great burst of enthusiasm and weaving, uh, and then it dies a death. Yeah, uh, and if you go back to them five years later and say, "By the way, uh, you're not doing anything with your tartan," oh, have we got a tartan? Uh, and I suspect you may uh, you may have uh, situations like that as well. The uh, yeah, some of the uh, I'm, I'm going to expand it from just mills to you know uh, companies, you know, kilt makers, things like that. Um, you know, for instance, we've done you know the firefighter memorial that my wife did. Um, we've done law enforcement and, you know, we just did an American dream tartan. So there's companies either like us or like the mills that have a, a, a vested financial interest in making it work and pushing it forward. It is much easier for us to do a thing with resources than an individual person or, or you know, a couple people um, trying to make something go. So I think that's why it will end up going further is you know essentially because of, of resources whether it's financial or marketing or whatever it is yes uh, you're, you're right it, it's the, the all the elements are there uh to maintain the industry and that's ultimately what is the most important thing is maintaining the industry to yes. make sure generations 200 years from now 300 years from now still have the ability to get you know historical you know things that are from you know clan tartans from the 1800s from the 1700s and of course now with the the the, the great advances in digital printing uh, i was in a printer's just two days ago uh, on the high street uh, who were who were who will print uh, tartan gift wrap nice and so there, there are there are lots of uh, lots of outputs that uh, will ensure that tartan continues, uh, and not necessarily weaving. But uh, I think clan members will uh, clan members will keep that going. So now here's to a uh, a broader question about kilts. We've um, asked this of several people. I'm curious on your your take on it. Um, there's, you know, different ends of the spectrum of who's allowed to wear the kilt, all the way from anyone with a heartbeat, or even if you're dead, you can be buried in it, all, all the way up to, nope, you're only, you know, only Scots from the Highlands who are of a particular clan, those are the ones that are allowed to wear the kilt. In your opinion, who is allowed to wear the kilt? 
I think you used them now. You, anyone with a heartbeat. <laughs> it very much depends how they're wearing the kilt. Um, if they're uh, wearing a clan kilt and suggesting that they're they're a Mackenzie or they're a McCarvish or whatever, and they're not, then it's questionable. But I I would think the people doing that are are, are few and far between. Uh, and if it gives people enjoyment, uh, let them wear a kilt. Uh, the only thing I would I would love to see happening uh, is that people learn how to wear a kilt. Uh, and not turn not to turn it into uh, not to turn themselves into a figure of ridicule, uh, and by association, the kilt and the tartan becoming ridiculed. Uh, well, that's that's an interesting point, and here's here's where I'll go with that. Um, there, there's the, the the cookie tin, you know, cookie cutter version of what. A Highland person dressed in Highland dress should look like, um, and a lot of that was codified in the you know late 1800s, early 1900s, up to about 1920 or 30 or so. However, there's you know as as a living, breathing bit of fashion, for better or worse, um, people will do different things with it, and uh, you know whether that's you know people in the diaspora or you know people with Scottish heritage who didn't grow up in Scotland all the way through, you know, people in the Tartan army. So here, the other question is how much, um, uh, what's the word I have here? How much, how much room for experimentation? How much fun are you allowed or should you have within crafting an outfit versus how much should it just be? No, it is for formal wear and that is it. I go back to what I was saying just now that um, it should be worn properly so that you're not bringing someone's national dress uh, into disrepute. Define properly. The height of the kilt should be middle of the knee. You start wearing it two and three inches below the knee, it's no longer a kilt, it's a skirt, and you look daft. Understood. If you're going to wear a kilt, if, if someone is going to wear a kilt, they ought to do the country of its origin, uh, the, the, the decency of wearing it properly. And, and, and that's um, very old fashioned, but the number of people I've seen who should never have had a kilt on, not because they weren't entitled to it, uh, I think this was really what I thought you were talking about is who is entitled to wear a kilt. I'm saying anybody can wear a kilt. But when you start wearing it improperly, then you're meddling with someone else's heritage and it really is quite distasteful. I, I agree 100%. Now the, the, the further question. So if we can establish essentially middle-ish of knee, top-ish of knee, somewhere in that range is traditional height where it, where it typically should be worn. Outside of that, um, how, much, uh, uh, how much are you allowed to play with it a little bit? Meaning, if I have on a, a polo shirt and a kilt and a pair of trainers or sneakers, 
if I have versus a tweed jacket and vest uh, and a hunting sporn versus a Prince Charlie for formal only. Where, where do you fall with playing with the accessories and the levels of formal within it? I think you're perfectly entitled to play with the accessories, a, a T-shirt and a kilt uh, and a pair, of, uh, a pair of sneakers with your socks down around your ankles. If you've got any socks, uh, that's fine. Uh, you're making a, a bold statement there and yet you're wearing the kilt informally. You're wearing a kilt instead of a pair of trousers. Uh, I, I see absolutely nothing wrong with that. And I don't think that you could be accused of bringing the kilt or its its traditions into disrepute by doing that. Uh, so I, I'm I'm easy oozy on uh, on that one. Uh, it's it's when people go to ridiculous extremes and use the kilt as part of those extremes that uh, I start to I start to worry. It keeps you up at night, huh? Uh, no, no. I, a couple of gins uh, before I go to bed, and I forget all about kilt. Fair. All right. Now, the question that every kilt wearer gets asked, what are you wearing under your kilt? I don't want to know what you're wearing under the kilt. I want the broader question. Should this question just be put out to pasture, or is it just a good bit of fun that allows people to you know, have a conversation around the kilt and get that conversation started? Well, I'm afraid that genie is, is well and truly uh, out of the bottle, and I wouldn't suggest uh, trying, to, trying to shove it back in again. Uh, I think particularly for youngsters, it's, it's a bit of fun. And if you remember those, uh, those drawings of the uh, madams in France trying to look up the look up the kilts of the Highland Regiment that was stationed in Paris in, I think, 18th century and early 19th century. Uh, it's been around for a long time, and I'm quite sure it'll it'll always be there, and, and there's no harm in it, uh, except uh, when you start hiring kilts. Uh, and then I think the, uh, the stricture that wear under your kilt what you wear under your trousers probably should apply every time. I've spoken to many kilt hire shops and uh, they're pretty disgusted by what comes back into them sometimes after a hire. Uh, and one doesn't need to go in, into any more detail than that. And it's common sense, really, Rocky. Um, you would not go around with nothing under your trousers. So why do it when you've got a substitute for trousers? Uh, and yeah. I, I think yeah, it's just I, as simple as that. I I could not agree more. The um and and more to the point, I wouldn't ask someone else, "Hey, what are you wearing underneath your skirt or underneath your pants?" I'd find it a little weird, but it is what it is. You'd get locked. The, you'd uh, get locked up there in this country <laughs> if you if you asked a lady that. <laughs> pretty much, the 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 most interesting tidbit of of psychological <laughs> manipulation, let's say, that I've heard from a, a Scottish hire, a Scottish rental company, was uh, basically in trying to encourage their people who are renting their kilts to wear underwear, how they would phrase it to them is, now look, you're, you don't wanna wear underwear in your kilt. Do you really want to not wear underwear? Where 
other men have probably not worn underwear as well. And the instantly like, oh, yeah, good point. I don't want my uh, to to quote the, f the famous show Seinfeld. I don't want my boys hanging out with your boys hung out. <laughs> so I, I find it you know, am amusing that there has to be a psychological aspect to how people approach it. I think I would immediately go to a new kilt hire specialist and, and uh, say to the old ones, you mean you don't clean your kilts in between hires? Nah, <laughs> they should. Yes, but I, I don't, I don't know if I would trust it. Yeah, quite that fully. No, but yeah, no, you're absolutely right. That's a that that that's one that's one good way to uh, one good way to handle the situation. Yeah, dissuade people, if you will. Yes. Now, not that I want you to go anywhere, but <laughs> I will ask you this: um, How would you like to be remembered in the annals of time? How would you like to be remembered? for your contributions to the to Tartan and to Scotland in general? Ooh. What I would like and what will happen are, uh, are very many poles apart. Uh, my contribution that will remain will be a book, which I hope will be a standard for, for many years to come. I suppose pose the one conceit that I have is that I was probably not the first but one of the first uh, who most enthusiastically pushed the boundaries of tartan design out so that we could have designs such as the arctic convoy tartan uh, and many others that actually have meaning to people uh, and I don't think I could expect very much more. Um, I think Jamie Scarlett, uh, I was a great fan and a great friend of his. Uh, he was someone who said it as it was. Uh, in other words, he, he cut through the myths and the misinformation that abounded and still abounds uh, on Highland dress on, on, uh, and tartan. Uh, and he said the same of me after my book came out. He said, Brian Wilton tells it as it is. And I think that's probably the most I could uh, I could expect. But I have no illusions that uh, if I if I do go anywhere, I'm not saying when uh, I don't think there will be uh, there will not be many people in the tartan world who will remember because they, they, the, the old researchers have gone. I haven't seen any new ones coming along uh, to whom someone like me who played a part in the world of tartan uh, had some input. Um, so that, that's, that's, a, that's a sad way of putting it, but uh, I'm just being realistic. No, it's, I, A, I, I agree that, the, uh, uh, that you do have a way of kind of cutting through the BS. And, that is, in, in a way, what we are trying to do as well with the things that we're putting out. And I think it is needed. I think the, the, the misty origins of things such that they are, there's not much we can do too much about that because, you know, it is what it is. Mm. But cementing things now, cementing things that have happened or occurred within the last 40 years, within your tenure at the, the Tartan Authority, within my tenure here as the head of the company, um, 
that is where we can actually move the needle. And that is where we can actually go on record and say, nope, this is the way it is. It's, you know, this is BS, this is fact. And that is going to be valuable to future generations. And honestly, you, I think you will be sorely missed, at least by me. Um, and I think you have a great way of being able to cut through it all. And I appreciate that very much about you. Well, that's, that's very kind of you, Rocky. And, and uh, you're one of the, the, the few voices in the industry uh, that I would um, take very much notice of over in the States <laughs> because uh, there, there, is, there, there is a lack of, a lack of interest in, in, in doing things uh, properly and of finding out um, you know, what's misinformation and what isn't. So more, more power to your elbow. Thank you, sir. It's, it, it, is, it is incumbent upon all of us, whether you know, we're, we're history nerds, whether, we're, you know, whether we're, uh, we're consumers, whether we're stores, it is incumbent upon all of us to figure out the truth and get to the heart of the matter so that we're not just pushing forward myths in the way that have been, has been done in the past, but that we are actually passing on fact and good mm. data. We are stewards of the data and we need to push it forward. Yeah. And I think, again, you are, you are great in the way that you do that. Yeah, that's very kind of you. And, and next time we ever have a chat, ask me about Irish and Welsh tartans and ask me about the tartan timeline and we can, uh, we can talk more. I, I'm sure you have no, no firm opinions on any of those things. You're, I've never heard anything about it. You're absolutely right, of course. Ryan, I've known you for years, and I honestly appreciate your willingness to share your knowledge and your love of Tartan with the world. And I love the fact that we are able to actually sit down and kind of have this discussion and put it on wax. So again, thank you very much for joining me, Brian. That's been a pleasure, Rocky. A great pleasure. Thanks for joining us. The intro music for Tartan Talk is Irish Coffee by Giorgio De Campo. If you want to get social with other kilt enthusiasts, go check out the Kilts and Culture group over on Facebook. You can find USA Kilts on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, or over at our website, usakilts.com. If you like the show, it would really mean a lot to us if you left a rating since it helps new people find our show. Thanks again for joining us, and until next time, Slanjavah.